say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. This is The Red Line, where we interview three geopolitical experts on one big issue shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. I want you to imagine yourself in the position of Xi Jinping, the increasingly singular leader of the People's Republic of China. And as Xi Jinping, I want you to imagine yourself walking into the Grand War Room, a room that at its center sits a long wooden table inhabited by China's top military, security, and defense officials. And as the meeting begins, they once again bring up the issue of Taiwan with you, exasperating to you once again that this renegade province should be brought back under the leadership of Beijing, going on to solicit you directly by explaining that whilst those other leaders failed to bring Taiwan back under Beijing's rule, you will succeed. Because you aren't like those previous Chinese leaders, and the Chinese army isn't like that previous Chinese army. He goes on that the days of the Chinese soldier holding nothing but a rifle and khaki clothes are long gone, and that the People's Liberation Navy has modernized over 70% of its fleet. It has hundreds of Gen 5 fighters, and that your missile forces are the envy of the world, and that China put more boats into the water in the last decade than Germany, France, India, Italy, South Korea, and Taiwan combined. And that standing in defiance of you, Taiwan is still using submarines designed during the Second World War. Yes, previous leaders had tried and failed, but that was decades ago. You take all of this on board, but you're also too clever to be manipulated by this general's flattery. You know that in almost every single scenario and war game, when Beijing attempts an invasion of Taiwan, they suffer a massive defeat. And that's how it's been for years. But this meeting's different though. This time, your economists have also come in. And he then takes to the podium to lay out his series of concerns. He points out the problems in the Chinese housing market. He points to the worsening demographic crisis unfolding in the country. He points to the soon-to-occur tipping point where China's wages rise to a level where countries decide to go elsewhere for their business. And then, unlike previous events, he turns to the military. See, China has thrown buckets of money at their military over the last few years. And this spending is what enabled Beijing to build this massive fleet of ships. And to all of those looking on, the growth rate on the graph has been absolutely phenomenal. But new ships don't require a lot of repairs. Decade-old ones, though, often do. Now, very soon, you'll have to start diverting more and more of your budget away from expanding your grand fleet. Instead, spend it all maintaining the fleet you have. The graph begins to plateau. All of these problems with demographics and economics and military strength really start to pick up around the 2026-2027 mark. And at that point, most of the projections show your military either beginning to plateau or even taking a step back depending on how bad the economy gets. Or whilst your adversary in Taiwan continues to steadily grow and receive tech from the Americans. The gap between you and Taiwan is still there, but with every year that goes by past 2027, that gap between you shrinks. As this reality dawns on you, your generals begin to explain that, Sir, we either have to do this now or never. Without massive change, the PRC will never be in this good a position ever again. That either we launch an invasion in 2026, 
or we accept a permanent position on the second place podium. Now, all of this does sound motivating, but a logical man would still look at the battle reports and studies and conclude that a permanent second place is still far better than everything blowing up in your face. Then again, that's if you're reading those reports, the conclusion you come to if you actually have people giving you good intel. Russia's 2022 invasion of Ukraine shocked many analysts, and I'm sure many analysts inside the Russian defense sphere tried to give Putin lots of intel that Ukraine wouldn't lay down their arms like they did in 2014, or that the military was in far poorer condition than what it seemed on paper. But Putin had been isolated since 2020, only receiving intel from the men that got into his inner circles by telling the boss what he wanted to hear, not what he needed to hear. And now as we hear the echo, with Xi increasingly centralizing and isolating himself from wider expertise, are we at risk of watching a Ukraine 2.0 unfolding here on the beaches of Taiwan? That if Xi gets the now or never speech, but also gets a report projecting that Taiwan would keel over at the first sign of trouble, would he also authorize his own death nail? That is one of the major concerns of the entire East Asian region at the moment. The war, whether logical or not, is sleepwalking into reality. And so, everyone is beginning to prepare for the worst. Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, and the US have all seen the alarm bells and have begun massive rearmament, restructure, and reevaluations of their military capabilities. But what have they found? Do they think we're heading for war in 2026? Will Xi be listening to the men closest to him or his more adept field commanders? Would any war be fought just over Taiwan, or would it also include the Korean Peninsula or the Spratly Islands or even the north of Vietnam? And will the Western nations be able to wave a large enough red flag to avoid Xi flipping over the geopolitical table? Well, those are the questions we're going to be tackling here today. And to begin with, and take us through the massive restructuring and refitting currently being undertaken by the Chinese military, we turn to our first guest. Part 1. Creeping Toward Conflict Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. I think it's far from predetermined what the long-term outcome will be. In general, I'm skeptical that the U.S. and Chinese are headed to war anytime soon. But over the long term, I think it remains an open question. Tim Heath is a senior international defense researcher at the RAND Corporation. But prior to joining RAND, he served as the senior analyst of the U.S. Pacific Command, China Strategic Focus Group. He has over 20 years experience researching and analyzing military and political topics related to China whilst also appearing in numerous publications and finishing up an extensive series of studies looking at the impacts of long-term systemic war between the United States and China. And we're thrilled to have on the program today. I think there's a, quite a bit of confusion about a potential Chinese attack on Taiwan. There's several reasons why this belief has taken hold in the public. First, there's the shock of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I think that attack really surprised many analysts and observers who believed warfare between conventional militaries really was obsolete. When the Russians invaded Ukraine, that spurred many people to 
re-examined their assumptions, and many observers about China and Taiwan began to reconsider their belief that China would avoid attacking Taiwan as well. So that was one factor. Second, I think there's been some unfortunate media misreporting about a piece of intelligence that was announced by the U.S. government. David Cohen, CIA director, stated that there's intelligence that President Xi Jinping told the PLA that he wanted to have options, have the PLA be ready to execute some sort of mission around Taiwan by 2027. But the U.S. government official and military officials have consistently stated there is no intelligence to say that the Chinese government has decided to actually attack Taiwan. And it's important nuance. What these government officials are saying is that there appears to be some military modernization goals that the, that uh, Xi Jinping and senior leaders have set for the PLA, but there is no political decision that we know of to actually attack Taiwan. Regardless of whether there is a war, it is still pertinent to look at what both sides would be able to put into the field in an event of conflict. And for China, their military has undergone some extensive modernization over the last few years with over 70% of the Chinese Air Force now being modernized, and China launching more ships since 2014 than Germany, France, India, Italy, Taiwan, and South Korea combined. They've also doubled their amphibious fleet, and blowing right past Russia and Europe to be the second country to bring a Jet 5 fighter to operational status, with almost all of this coming about in just the last decade. So how did China achieve this in such a short space of time? Well, it certainly helps when you're the second largest economy in the world. So decades of rapid economic growth have generated a lot of resources, which the government has put into the military and not just in the military. An important factor has been that the Chinese have been willing to invest in a industrial base, a science and technology research and development base. They've invested in their education system. The economy grew rapidly, and by 2010, China had become the second largest economy in the world. That rapid growth provided considerable amount of resources, which the government spent on a number of things, but certainly they spent a lot of money on modernizing the military. They spent it buying Russian equipment, acquiring Russian technology. They also invested heavily in building up the research and development science and technology infrastructure uh, in China to support not just military modernization, but economic modernization. They also invest in the education system and acquiring scientific technologies that are commercial, but also dual use in nature. Another related factor is that the Chinese carried out quite a bit of espionage, frankly, and reverse engineering of advanced technologies that they got their hands on. And when they did this, this gave them access to some very sophisticated technologies, which they used in the development of their own armed forces. Can you put this into some context for us? How modern is the Chinese Navy when we compare it to other regional rivals like Japan or the US? The Chinese Navy has made impressive gains and it is quite modern and perhaps lags not too far behind the US and some of its most advanced allies, such as Japan. In general, the Chinese destroyers are quite capable. They have very good missile systems, surface-to-air, surface-to-surface missiles. These have incredible ranges uh, going out to hundreds of miles, very accurate, very lethal. Uh, equally importantly, these warships have advanced radars, digital array radars. These are the most advanced radars to allow 
Warships attract multiple targets at once in a, a very accurate level of detail and a huge improvement over older radar technologies. So Chinese warships are pretty advanced, um, not too far behind Western warships. Some of their other platforms are a little older aircraft carriers, for example. The Chinese aircraft carriers still rely on a what is known as a ski slope configuration. This is a Soviet design that allows aircraft to get off of the ship much easier, but it limits the weight of the aircraft. And so these carriers generally are less capable than U.S. carriers, which rely on catapult systems and therefore can field larger numbers of aircraft. And the aircraft that do launch from a U.S. carrier are capable of carrying much heavier payloads. Similarly, Chinese submarines have made impressive gains and some of their diesel subs are quite stealthy. They're very quiet using uh, certain technologies that allow them to minimize the amount of time that they have to surface to release exhaust from their diesel engines. But their nuclear submarines are still relatively noisy and much easier to detect than U.S. submarines. So in general, I would say that the Chinese Navy has made impressive gains and their destroyer force has perhaps come the closest to catching up to the U.S., but the Chinese carrier force and the submarine force continues to lag by a considerable margin. And the Chinese Navy being behind the U.S. makes sense, particularly when you compare the Chinese and U.S. military budgets. But just comparing the Chinese number and the U.S. number doesn't really give you a complete picture of what these countries are actually spending on their militaries. As an example, there are some things like healthcare for soldiers and R&D, which the US will count as part of their defense budget, whereas China doesn't. There are even entire branches, like the US Coast Guard, which Washington considers to come under the defense budget, but China, in contrast, has their 500,000 strong armed police force, which is also heavily armed and can be deployed, but doesn't come under the Chinese defense budget. So when trying to compare the US and Chinese military spending, do you think there's a lot of nuance in this? That people tend to miss. There's several issues with comparing those military budgets. First off, there, there are issues of purchasing power parity. That's the idea that a dollar spent in China could buy a lot more than a dollar spent in the US or equivalent currency. And it's true. In some categories of spending, Chinese spending goes much further than U.S. Uh, spending. For example, wages in China, but you pay a soldier in China may seem extremely low in the U.S., but given the low cost of food and clothing and some other essentials, that salary actually can go quite a bit further in China than it may appear. However, there are limitations to the use of purchasing power parity when trying to adjust what China spends in comparison to the U.S., the reality is the cost of their ships, missiles, aircraft, a lot of that can really be evaluated in market terms because those sophisticated pieces of equipment rely to a great degree on raw materials and components and parts that are purchased on the world market. And therefore, uh, they have comparable prices or they can be compared to U.S. counterparts. The other thing to bear in mind when examining Chinese defense budgets announced by the government is that the Chinese omit a large number of expenses that we would consider as part of the defense budget. For example, defense-related research and development, not all of it is counted in the defense budget. Civil military dual-use technologies, Chinese don't consider those. 
Veterans care is not announced in the central government budget since a lot of veterans care happens at the local level provinces. So if you group in all the other categories of defense-related spending, not including the official budget, then the Chinese budget gets to be quite a bit larger. By the U.S. government's estimate in the Chinese military power report to Congress, if you look at that document, the estimate is that it could be up to 1.5 to twice as large as the official budget. Yet one more important point to bear in mind is that the U.S. defense budget pays for a military that operates around the entire world. It's truly a global military with forces stationed in Asia, Europe, Middle East, and we have a presence in virtually every corner of the world. The Chinese budget, it may be a third to a half as large as the U.S., but the PLA operates almost exclusively in Asia. So that that spending is highly concentrated and gives the Chinese, uh, in some ways, an advantage over U.S. military capability, at least in the area right off of China's coast near Taiwan. If the Chinese military kit is as good as many claim it to be, then why are so few countries actually purchasing it? As an example, in 2021, Russia made up 19% of the global arms exports market, whereas China makes up just 4.6, only slightly above Germany and behind France. So for such a large and modern military, why do most countries still choose to buy Russian arms over Chinese gear? The Russians have an advantage that is frankly a legacy of the Cold War. During the Cold War, the Russians aggressively cultivated clients and partner states around the world, built up political relationships with these countries and, you know, established military sales relationships with many of these countries. That And that legacy continues to influence arms buying patterns around the world. However, the Russians are definitely starting to lose market share and a major competitor is China. China is starting to muscle into the same market that the Russians dominate, which is tends to be the lower end of the arms market, developing countries, poorer countries, often autocratic countries. And this trend will probably accelerate in the future for several reasons. First, the Russian war in Ukraine has steered the Russian defense industry away from exports and towards supporting the war effort. So Russian suppliers are less available than they were before the war. Second, the Russian-Ukraine war has really tarnished the reputation of Russian weapons. The poor performance of the Russian army, I think, has caused people to question how wise an investment it is to buy large amounts of Russian gear. By contrast, the Chinese are gaining a good reputation for selling fairly high quality equipment at good prices. In the drone sector, for example, the Chinese have established a dominating presence and the Russians are really not competitive. And then in other areas, small arms, tanks, aircraft, the Chinese are seeing their share of sales go up. And I expect this trend to continue and expect the Russians to struggle uh, in the future to maintain their clients. Where China has been spending its defense money, though, is also quite interesting, with Beijing investing quite heavily into its missile forces, naval forces, and air capabilities, particularly its surface-to-air missile forces along the East Coast. If you were Beijing and you were planning to invade Taiwan in the next three to four years, what would you be prioritizing your spending on? Well, in the event the Chinese were to decide to attack Taiwan, perhaps their most pressing need would be to build up the amphibious fleet of ships necessary to convey large amounts of troops across the water. 
Currently, they do not have adequate ships to move more than a small number of troops across the Taiwan Strait and land on the beach. You also have to factor in attrition, which is uh, loss of ships or casualties from fighting. And uh, if you factor that in, then it's clear that the Chinese really need to have more ships available. So that probably would be one priority. Another would be to ramp up the number of missiles of all ranges. Intermediate range, which can go three to 5,000 kilometers away, would be really important. MRBM, ICBM even, as a deterrent against the U.S. And then short-range ballistic missile. They have a large inventory of these, but they could always use more. The point of having a large number of missiles is that the Chinese could wreak havoc on U.S. bases ships and aircraft that attempted to intervene. It would also allow the Chinese to pulverize Taiwan's defenses and make invasion easier to carry out. Yes, China does have a smaller amphibious fleet, but there are those who would point toward China's massive civilian and state cargo ship fleet as a solution to the problem. These are the same ships that are usually used for day-to-day -day transport of goods. There are those that would argue that if an amphibious landing in Taiwan could successfully secure a port somewhere on the Taiwanese coast, it would then be very easy to use these civilian ships to bring troops, vehicles, and equipment across the channel and unload at the port, much like any other piece of cargo. Something the Chinese are running drills for as we speak. Is there a worry that by looking at China's small amphibious fleet and disregarding their amphibious capabilities, that we may not be taking into mind the large cargo fleet that could be used to supplement it? Well, they do have some civilian ships that are capable of supporting military cargo. These are known as roll-on, roll-off, row-row type ships, but their ability to operate in a military operation is not clear given the limited amount of training that these civilian ships take part in. These civilian ships are also extremely vulnerable since they have no defenses. So if the Taiwanese or American forces attack them, they could easily be destroyed. So yes, China could use civilian vessels, but I see that as kind of a stopgap given a lack of actual military transport ships that have some self-defense capability. And if I was a Chinese leader, I'd want, although Chinese missiles could handle US warships and aircraft, the Chinese currently have limited capability to uh, stop US submarines from operating in the Taiwan straight and sinking a large number of ships. So that would, finding a way to control the threat from U.S. submarines would be a priority as well. Well, what about China's hypersonic missile program? These missiles are designed to travel so fast as to avoid detection or interception. And although China's numbers of them are quite low, they are touted by China to be carrier killers and held up by China as a $50 million weapon that can do up to $40 billion of damage if it sinks an aircraft carrier with a deck full of planes. But how much of a threat do you think these hypersonic missiles are to the U.S. fleet going forward? Well, hypersonic missiles add another danger to U.S. warships, but I think the real game changer was the inventory of ballistic missiles that China created years ago. There are currently very limited defenses against ballistic missiles, and the ranges are incredible. They already go all the way out to Guam. So any U.S. carrier that attempted to come close to Taiwan in the event of a war is a sitting duck for Chinese anti-ship ballistic missiles, DF-21D, DF-26. And the hypersonics just adds another danger on top of that. So I think, yes, absolutely. U.S. surface ships would be extremely vulnerable 
if they try to get anywhere near Taiwan, on the other hand, if they try to stay safely away from Taiwan, like out beyond Guam, then they're so far away that they actually are irrelevant to any actual war near Taiwan. Well, China's been bragging about their new J-20 multi-role fighters, with reports estimating that China has around 210 of them in operation at the moment. The claim from the People's Air Force is that these stack up as an equivalent to around an F-22 from the Americans. But how do you think the J-20s stack up as compared to an F-22? Yeah, so the J-20 is China's premier fighter aircraft. It certainly represents a major advance over previous Chinese designs, but it's not really comparable to the F-22 because it lacks several important capabilities. First off, it does not have the super cruise capability that the F-22 does. That's the ability to fly at a sustained rate above the speed of sound. In other words, to fly at supersonic speeds for a sustained period of time. So China's aircraft, the J-20, cannot do that. They have limited avionics that allow them to operate with drones and other platforms in the way that the F-22 does. Although they do share some of the stealth characteristics and maneuverability of the F-22, they are still quite a bit behind in terms of technological capability compared to the F-22. They are still quite capable aircraft and would pose a threat to U.S. fourth-generation aircraft, such as the F-18. It would be, I think, a real challenge to, for the F-35 to deal with. But I think the real equalizer on China's side isn't really the J-20. It's the, it's the fleet of surface-to-air missiles that would be available for the Chinese to use in the event of a war near Taiwan. So the F-22 would have to deal not just with the J-20, which probably it could handle. It would have to deal with uh, the you know the huge number of surface-to-air missiles with advanced radars that probably could at some point detect these F-22s and shoot at them. If it wants to detect the F-22, then it's very tough to avoid getting shot down. So we have to bear in mind that not only does China have newer aircraft, they have the home field advantage, as it were, of fighting close to their shores in the event of a war near Taiwan. Whilst surface-to-air missiles are a fantastic and comparatively cheaper way to negate your opponent's overwhelming air power, they also can't do much outside of their range. For this, China would turn towards its aircraft carriers, which it's projected to have three within the next few years. So for China, are these aircraft carriers meant to provide additional air support within the Strait of Taiwan, or are they meant for projecting into the South China Sea and protecting their island bases out there, or even as far out as the Malacca Strait or the Central Pacific, and give China far-flung projection of air power. I think the aircraft carrier really is designed to support Chinese operations out along the Indian Ocean and out to the Mediterranean. The reason why the Chinese are interested in operating along that route is that is where Chinese oil travels. Most of Chinese oil imports originate in Africa and the Middle East and they, they travel on the Indian Ocean. It's not just oil. A lot of Chinese merchant traffic trade moves along the Indian Ocean and through the South China Sea as well. So they will have to bring their air force air cover with them if they want to patrol that area and provide some security for oil tankers and merchant ships. Of course, with carriers, you need to bring assets to protect the carriers, such as air defense ships, and the Chinese are building those. Those destroyers I mentioned have lots of surface-to-air missiles and are very strong anti-air assets. They have submarines that can go out along that route as well to provide uh, support underwater. But yes, the Chinese are investing in building fleets that can travel all the way out along the Indian Ocean out to the Persian Gulf and 
the Gulf of Aden. Of course, the Chinese now have one overseas military base in Djibouti that provides limited logistic support to any ships that uh, travel to that area. But how would you compare the military industrial bases of these two countries? For the sake of the argument, let's say that China and the US engage in a conflict and each of them sink two of the other's carriers. Who would be quicker to build and replace those two downed carriers? Uh, interesting question, because on the one hand, the US defense industrial base has shrunk and it's relatively modest compared to the heyday of the Cold War when the US had a much larger defense industrial base. We only have one or two shipyards, for example, that, that make military warships. The Chinese have a larger capacity because they're in the middle of a, a major buildup to have more shipyards and plenty of factories to, to build aircraft and equipment. So just on that alone, if we look at peacetime status, the Chinese seem to have do have a larger capacity to build military equipment. However, in war, no doubt the U.S. would be ramping up its capacity, so that situation would change quite a bit. On net, the picture probably would be complicated by the fact that U.S. would ramp up its defense spending and try to build up its industrial base, although that would take time. And the Chinese advantage would be attrited to some extent from the effects of war. China is able to spend its money at the moment putting lots of new ships into the water. But by around the 2025-2026 mark, China's military budget will have to undergo major changes. You see, when ships are brand new, they don't require a whole lot of maintenance, as everything on the ship's pretty new. But at that around 2026 point, many of the ships will come up for their first rounds of overhauls and major refits. And China will have to take large parts of their budget they were using to build brand new ships and instead use it to repair their existing fleet of ships which by some estimates is very likely to flatten the growth line of the Chinese Navy. Do you think this cost shift from building to repairing ships will likely have a large impact on the growth of the Chinese Navy? Certainly maintaining this advanced equipment will start to consume a larger share of their budgets. We found that to be the case for the United States military when it started to acquire all sorts of advanced equipment, the maintenance costs certainly go up. Chinese budgets themselves show that the share of spending that goes towards modernization of equipment and sustaining them is going up. So the Chinese are already feeling the effects of fielding aircraft carriers and stealth fighters and other advanced platforms. Over time, the expense of maintaining and you have to also train and, and prepare people to operate this sophisticated equipment, all those expenses start to go up. We talked a lot about China and their military procurement today, but let's take a look at the US for a second. What sort of equipment will they be looking to prioritize to prepare for defense of Taiwan and combat with China? So the real vulnerability in a Chinese plan to conquer Taiwan is the surface ships. It's, just, it's the same vulnerability as the US. Surface ships are incredible, incredibly vulnerable on the modern battlefield because of the accuracy and range of anti-ship missiles and the incredible detail that overhead imagery and other sensors can provide militaries for targeting purposes. So as Chinese ships full of troops try to leave their ports and invade Taiwan, when they're on the water, they are extremely vulnerable to either torpedoes from U.S. submarines. And, and as I mentioned, U.S. submarines are really stealthy and difficult to detect. So it's very likely that U.S. submarines could wreak havoc on a Chinese amphibious force. Um, but they're also vulnerable to long-range missile shots from could be bombers operating well outside 
the range of Chinese surface air missiles. If I was the U.S. Defense Secretary and I wanted to ensure our military forces were capable of defeating a Chinese invasion, I would authorize the sale of surface air missiles to Taiwan, a lot of them, to shoot down as many Chinese aircraft as possible. And I would encourage the Taiwanese to build out their fleet of anti-ship missiles so they could sink as many amphibious ships as possible. And then, the, then for the U.S. military, I would invest in submarines, anti-ship torpedoes, and extremely long-range anti-ship missiles that could be launched from aircraft. And then you could send these aircraft up, fire some missiles, and then fly away before the Chinese could get aircraft in the air to, to try to attack them. Doing that could put enormous pressure on the Chinese amphibious force and potentially break their ability to invade and conquer Taiwan. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. So, by the looks of it, we're now looking at a mostly modernized China, a China with hundreds of fifth-gen fighters, a growing amphibious fleet, and putting more ships into the water than most of the developed world combined. But as much as this modernization has dominated news headlines for years now, it would be foolish to assume that it was just China modernizing this period, with many countries across East Asia also undergoing massive shifts within their militaries. An example, South Korea in this period has become one of the largest arms exporters in the world, and Japan has thrown away any semblance of a self-defense force, creating an aggressive and capable armed force that they hoped would eventually be able to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with China. Even Taiwan has spent this period improving its defenses and acquiring arms, worrying Beijing that with each and every passing day, Taiwan becomes stronger and more difficult to coerce with force if necessary. And that's not even talking about the US, with its ginormous armed forces, and thanks to chip sanctions, a likely widening technological gap. Obviously, most intelligence analysts in the West are watching China and seeing them rearm themselves. But at the same time, China's watching East Asia rearm themselves. But what is China seeing? What arms are the East Asian countries starting to buy? And how are they preparing for a war that some seem to think is inevitable? Well, to answer that, we turn to our second guest. Part 2. Styling the Sledgehammer I do not believe it's inevitable that war is on tap, but one thing that has altered some of the considerations in East Asia, whether it's the government of Japan or the government of Taiwan, is obviously China's military buildup over the past two to three decades, their advancements in military production, China's aggressive posture and claims all across the South and East China Sea clearly give pause to some of these countries. But more importantly, the tipping point really was the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And while that does clearly doesn't impact countries in the Eastern Asian perimeter, it does send a reminder, first and foremost, that peer-on-peer -peer industrial scale warfare has not gone by the wayside. Daniel Darling is the International Military Markets Group Analyst for Forecast International 
a specialty economics, defense, military, and aerospace analysis firm. Dan specializes in the insight and analysis of the military markets in Asia, Australia, and the Pacific Rim nations. Dan's work has been cited in Aerospace and Defense News, Aerotech News and Review, and by the NATO Parliamentary Assembly. He's also written a number of fantastic pieces on the remilitarization of the militaries of East Asia and the future implications of the region going forward. And we're thrilled to have him on the program today. With Japan, almost all of this is driven by China, with one exception, North Korea's nuclear and ballistic missile program and the unpredictable nature of the North Korean regime. But in general, Japan went through about a decade-long period where they continued to decline in defense investment year on year. And that was basically from 2003 to 2012. And during that time, that uh, parallel with China's increased investment and expansion of their military in all major domains, land, air, and sea. And so what you're seeing now in this past year has been building for about a decade. And it started when Shinzo Abe returned to power in December 2012 and realized we're not keeping pace with their expansive military capabilities. And if we aren't careful, we won't have quantity or quality to offset their improved military reach. So a lot of this investment, first of all, they're doubling defense spending within a five-year period, which is a tremendous amount of investment. We're talking about bringing the defense budget up to about somewhere in the level of 85 billion by 2027. Uh, this will bring an end to the informal cap of 1% of defense spending of GDP. Support of the local defense industry, air combat capability, as we've seen, they've just uh, joined with Italy and Britain on the global combat air program. Basically the merging of two quote-unquote, sixth-generation combat aircraft programs into one shared, innovative future combat air system. Japan plans on getting two additional Aegis-equipped ballistic defense missile uh, destroyers. They are going to invest in space, hypersonics, long-range conventional strike. They have a plan. Uh, Fumio Kishida, the prime minister, just announced plans to acquire 400 U.S. produced Tomahawk cruise missiles, and that will be the counter-strike capability until their locally produced Type 12 missile is upgraded to have greater strike range. So for Japan, it's we're looking across the board, electronic warfare capabilities, high-power microwave radiation technology, even down to simpler things as doubling the amount of ammunition available because the war in Ukraine has taught all observers that in high intensity conflict, you can't just turn on production lines and that you are going to be expending a great amount of ordnance and ammunition in a short period of time. So you better have your stockpile reserves amply stored up. Well, the first and probably most obvious question around this topic is focusing on Japan. Obviously, a lot of this hinges on who's in the White House at the time, but say for a few outliers, it's pretty safe to assume that the US president would come to the aid of Taiwan if China were to carry out an invasion of the island. But if we assume that the US would get involved in the conflict, what would Japan do? Would Japan join the US in combat operations directly firing at China, or would they more likely stay neutral, but allow the US to use their air bases and ports across the Japanese archipelago? 
your inclination is correct. I think the Japanese are now tilting towards a much more aggressive posture while still adhering to a collective self-defense mantra. It's something that Japan has basically talked about for the past year that Taiwan is no-go zone from their perspective, that a first strike or an invasion of Taiwan is, is a red line. With Japan's military buildup, the key thing is, is that they want to be able to combat an aggressor and be able to do it for an extended period of time while the U.S. can muster bringing in the cavalry over the hills, so to speak. So from Japan's perspective, a strike on Guam, a strike on Taiwan is really encroaching too close to their own territorial integrity. That's clearly a strike on Taiwan means that the U.S. is entering into the scrum. And at that point, Japan and likely Australia aren't going to be on the outside looking in for long. When you read most of the wargaming analysis and reports on the China-Taiwan scenario, it's safely assumed that the U.S. will enter the war, Australia will follow the U.S., and that Japan does most likely enter, or at very least offers the U.S. use of Japan-based airfields and naval bases. But what about the US's other major ally in the region, South Korea? This is a country with a huge military industrial complex and a large well-trained and equipped army. But it's also a country that has an unfathomable amount of Chinese money within their economy and a neighbor to the north that they can't take their eyes off for too long. So with Taiwan in everyone's mind, how is South Korea traveling on this issue? That's an interesting question in that clearly South Korea has been a beneficiary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine in two ways. One, they've backfilled Poland's capability requirements where U.S. production, for instance, with the HIMARS, the high-intensity mobile artillery rocket system, the U.S. just doesn't have those hot production lines that can crank out the numbers that a country like Poland is looking to acquire. And so South Korea has moved in, they're talking about partnering on some projects with the UAE, you get into Southeast Asia, you start looking at countries like Vietnam that have traditionally been Russian, sole sourced almost Russian purchasers. Another consideration that's helped uh, countries like South Korea is the Katsa sanctions regime that the US has imposed, where countries that purchase Russian sourced equipment can be barred from buying U.S. sourced equipment, et cetera, et cetera. And a country like South Korea has more of a part to play as an arms supplier because in, in a scenario such as what you discussed on invasion of Taiwan, because South Korea's first and foremost strategic imperative is defense against the unpredictable next door neighbor in North Korea. So right now, Japan is undertaking a major reinforcement and redeployment across all of their southern island chains, like the Ryukyu and Senkaku Islands, these islands being only a short distance north of Taiwan. By Japan placing anti-air, anti-ship, and even ground attack missile batteries on these islands, is this Tokyo trying to provide a deterrent against an attack on Taiwan, or is Japan genuinely worried about an invasion of these southern islands? Japan's definitely tilted towards their outlying islands, but there is a realistic idea that defending everything means you're defending nothing. And so some of this is deterrent. There is in development a marine amphibious brigade that would be something that could come to the defense of some of these islands, either in support of the defense of those islands or in retaking 
one of those islands should they be taken early in conflict but some of those islands are just very vulnerable yet at the same time as japan acquires more long-range strike capabilities they're not completely defenseless it's it's just the, you wouldn't see something in the early stages akin to how islands were defended in the pacific in the second world war where it's a hundred thousand troops dug in on peleliu or one of those islands the japanese military is going through major reforms at the moment undertaking large efforts like deprioritizing interceptor planes building up amphibious forces within the japanese military and even talks of doing away with their entire fleet of attack and recon helicopters, and instead favoring UAVs and longer-range planes. Is this Japan gearing up for Taiwan, or is this Japan finally thinking further abroad to places like the Indian Ocean and South Pacific? I think right now the focus is still uh, self-defense, which has been their enshrined constitutional posture. I don't see them looking to go fighting dragons further abroad, but nonetheless, the the idea that a lot of this buildup is to be a better Pacific, East Asia, Indo-Pacific partner to first and foremost the United States, but also now Australia and even possibly India. Things like the Quad or attempts by Japan to tighten relationships with like-minded nations that are concerned by the rise of China. In terms of how they would shape their military, they still want to have air sea, high-end air sea capabilities first and foremost, because better to keep an enemy off your shores and then than having to fight them once they reach mainland Japan, one of the main Japanese islands. One of the things that should be noted with Japan with its declining population is how they're looking to shift a lot of manned platforms, both air and sea, even ground towards unmanned assets because unmanned assets are cheaper. They don't require the investment in human capital to the degree that manned platforms do. And so the, the loss of one is not as, it doesn't have the same impact as a loss of say 10,000 soldiers. One of the things that their, Japan's new defense buildup plan is focusing on is weaning off manned attack helicopters and, and moving towards unmanned platforms. And they're looking to do that, again, both at sea with ships and in the air with helicopters. The, the truth of the matter is pilots cost a lot of money. Pilots take a, a long time to train and they aren't easily replaceable when one is lost. So for Japan, with the population beginning to decline, this is merely being practical. Um, it's not saying that these types of assets are completely outdated. It's saying that we're going to have to think differently than the United States, Australia, and some other countries about how we can maintain a level of fighting capability with fewer human resources. And we need to also look at investing in other areas like the mil possible militarization of space. In a country with a national debt that's over 225% of GDP and that around 25% of annual budgeting goes to paying off that debt or servicing that debt, you have to start thinking a little bit differently. And what you need is direct firefight with a strong foe like China, it's not just your high-end technologies, which are awfully expensive, 
you're going to need firepower and you're going to need quantity. So suddenly the practicality of fielding 40 Apache AH-64 attack helicopters versus being able to field that many or double that amount in unmanned platforms that aren't as costly to purchase, to maintain, and aren't as as costly to lose in conflict, that clarifies a lot of things in the mind. It really focuses strategic thinkers' planning. For South Korea, we're seeing them enter the defense export market in a big way, selling tanks and self-propelled guns to everyone from Poland to Egypt to India. And because these South Koreans are selling more of their own equipment, it lowers the cost per unit quite dramatically, whilst at the same time bringing in loads of foreign capital into the country. So why aren't we seeing the same push from Japan? Why isn't Japan out there selling Type 10 tanks to help their military in the long run? To be quite frank, it's because they're uncomfortable with it. It's new to them. They only recently, I think it was around 2015, they only began loosening restrictions on arms sales. It's new to them. They don't have the support network. And by that, what I mean is they don't have the support at all levels of government, whether it's the Ministry of Defense, Ministry of Economy, Trade Commissions, etc. Marketing of equipment. It's completely just so new to them. And publicly, the public is only coming around even now to the idea of doubling the defense budget. So you saw Japan try to make a submarine sale with Australia. Japan, when Tony Abbott was prime minister and Shinzo Abe was the prime minister of Japan, Japan thought that they were about to get that contract, but they just don't have the the experience in offshoring work. So offset requirements like an Australia submarine case, how are you going to support Australian industry? Japan doesn't have an answer for that yet. It's very new to them and they will have to start small and pick up sales such as one prospective uh, sale to India for the Shinmaya amphibious aircraft and whether it's small sales of any kind of equipment to Philippines, they're going to have to learn how to just market it and then after sale support it and have the supplies of spare parts. Things that are whole of system marketing, sales, and after sales support. They're just really completely novel to them. Why a lot of these discussions are coming to a head now is based on China's economic situation. Many are starting to warn of economic storm clouds forming on the horizon for China. And when put in combination with repair costs starting to eat away at the Chinese military budget, for some of the Chinese military, an invasion of Taiwan may seem like a it's now or never situation coming up. So with Washington, Taipei, Tokyo, and Beijing all eyeing up October 2026, do you think Japan will be ready for the worst if it happens? I think it's a mixed bag. I think there's some low-hanging fruit, such as Tomahawk acquisitions that they could bring on board by around 2026. But yes, um, some of these developments, the horizon is much longer than the timeline estimated for when China would really hit the tipping point on the possibility of a successful attack on Taiwan. I would agree that much of this, whether it's the new Japanese FX, which is the global air combat sixth generation fighter, whether it's 
new and improved hypersonic missiles or hyper defensive hypersonic missiles. By 2027, will the Japanese military be in a much stronger position than it is now? Most likely. But will it be the optimal fighting force to hold off any attack by China or in support of Taiwan while waiting for greater numbers of U.S. Navy and Marine Corps and Air Force, et cetera, support coming over the horizon? I think that date is probably further to 2030 and beyond. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The 1st of October, 2026. 77 years after Mao declared the establishment of the People's Republic of China. That's the date that several of the studies and exercises have penciled in as the most likely kickoff day for a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, as it's historical, within China's time band, and the just month-long period of the year where the waters of the Taiwan Strait are at their calmest. But October 2026 isn't that far away. In fact, it's just 1,306 days from today, to be absolutely precise. And to put that in context, if we go backward 1,306 days, the song Old Town Road is still at the top of the music charts. And just think to yourself, how little time has passed between now and that period of your life where Old Town Road was being played everywhere. And that is how little preparation time everybody has left before, supposedly, this war kicks off. But how would that war play out? What should the US, Taiwan, and China be buying to prepare for it? And will any of the proposals actually put on the table make it to the field in time? Where to answer all of that, we turn to our final guest. Part 3 the first battle of the next war. You know, the fact that we did it 24 times gave it a lot of credibility and the fact that it's unclassified, you know, so we can talk about specific numbers and all of our assumptions. We'll talk about Japan. There was a real hunger out there to talk about the specifics and not just, well, you know, there are a lot of casualties and it's really bad and we need more munitions. Mark Kincaid is a senior advisor at the CSIS International Security Program. Before joining CSIS, he was a senior official in the U.S. Office of Management and Budget, working on issues such as the Department of Defense's budget strategy, war funding, and procurement programs. And before that, Mark worked on the force structure and acquisition issues in the Office of the Secretary of Defense and ran research and executive programs at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. And in addition to that, Mark was also a colonel in the U.S. Marine Corps Reserve and has spent over three decades deployed everywhere from Vietnam to Iraq. But most importantly for today's conversation, 
Mark was also the author of The First Battle of the Next War, Wargaming a Chinese Invasion of Taiwan. This was a series of carefully run war games conducted with some of the world's foremost military, technical, and political leaders playing each side. The exercise accounted for everything from ballistic missile interception rate to the numbers of personnel lost per landing site. And when looking at how a war between China and Taiwan would play out, this is the study that almost everybody quotes, and is easily the most widely circulated and respected of its kind across the industry. And Mark is its lead author and planner, so we're thrilled to have him on the program today. Well, our assumption about Japan was that it would allow the United States to use its uh, military bases, Kadena, Misawa, for example, uh, but it would stay out of the war itself with its own forces unless its homeland were attacked. And we came to this conclusion after talking to a lot of Japanese experts and a lot of senior Japanese officials, uh, retired political officials and military. So we're pretty comfortable with that as an assumption. What happens, though, is that the United States then flows a lot of its aircraft into these bases. These bases then, you know, the aircraft from these bases strike the Chinese fleet and aircraft over Taiwan. And eventually the Chinese look at this and say, you know, we, we can't tolerate this. You know, we can't give them sanctuary so close to the area of conflict. And then and they uh, strike the airfields. And they figure that if they're going to strike the U.S., airfields and cause collateral damage to the Japanese, and that's going to bring the Japanese in, they might as well strike all of the uh, Japanese bases. So they, uh, the Chinese will typically attack all of the Japanese bases as well as the Japanese fleet. And the reason this got so much attention in Japan is that previously Japan had assumed that it would have the choice about whether it participated in such a conflict or not. What the report argues is that that decision will probably be outside of Japan's control. So something I'm hearing more and more at the moment are people pointing toward Ukraine as a successful model for the US to follow going forward and suggesting that why should the US engaging as China when we could save thousands of lives and just funnel weapons to Taiwan like we're doing for Ukraine currently. So can you take us through why the Ukraine model may not work for Taiwan? Well, it's very different because we cannot execute the Ukraine strategy for Taiwan. Of course, with Ukraine, when the war began, we started sending large amounts of weapons and munitions to Ukraine. Russians tried to interdict that, but they were unable to do so. Problem with Taiwan is that the Chinese defensive bubble is so powerful. Their air and maritime capabilities are so overwhelming that nothing can get through to the island once the conflict begins. Uh, in our games, which we ran 24 times, several of the U.S. players tried to send convoys to the island or fly in uh, supplies. It always failed. The convoys were sunk. The uh, aircraft were shot down. Uh, what that means is that Taiwan has to start the war with everything it needs for at least the first month or two. So the study suggests that most of the time, China makes the decision to try and knock out as many of the Allied planes as possible in the first strike, hoping to destroy them whilst they're on the ground before they can get in the air and become very dangerous. The idea behind it being to knock out as many planes as possible and give themselves some breathing room to try and capture and capitulate Taiwan as quick as possible before the US can arrive in strength. This opening volley would prescribe missile strikes against Guam, the southern Japanese islands, all over Taiwan and military airports, ports, and supply dumps across Japan. This devastating opening salvo, though, would surely be classed as an attack on the US, and therefore does open the door for NATO to be called in. But from what I'm reading here, it suggests the US won't actually call on NATO. So why is this? Why doesn't the US trigger Article 5? 
Well, the first thing is this does not trigger Article 5. The NATO treaty was specifically written so that overseas possessions did not trigger uh, Article 5. The United States have been particularly worried about the British and French colonial empires didn't want to be dragged into a war over these. So uh, striking Guam would not trigger Article 5. We did look at NATO, though, and figured that Two things. I mean, first, you know, the UK and France might be willing to participate. They've sent forces into the Pacific. They have the capability to do that. But any forces that they would send would not arrive within the time frame of the game. And the game ran for three or four weeks. It would take at least that long for any British task force to get to the Pacific and probably a good deal longer. So both because we were uncertain whether NATO would participate and because of the long timeline. In any case, uh, NATO forces didn't figure into the war game. The study suggests that China will gain air and naval superiority over Taiwan from pretty much day one, and that it will take a few weeks for the US to fight their way back there and reopen air and sea corridors from the US to Taiwan. So why such a long delay for the US? Yeah, after um, a month, the United States has beat back uh, Chinese fleet and its air, and particularly the Chinese have started to run out of their missiles, which uh, dominate the early parts of the game. So at that point, U.S. surface forces can start getting a little closer to the island and chance to get supplies through, but not for at least a month. Invading Taiwan is no easy feat, though. And due to geography, the country's kind of a natural fortress. The island has a sharp mountain spine across the east coast, with many beaches having a nearly 90-degree climb to get off the beach, making it largely unsuitable for naval landings. And most of the west coast is either dense urban cities or long beach fronts with squishy sand that tanks and military vehicles would immediately sink into if they were to land, making them both useless and very large targets. What this means is we're left with only around 7-10 to 10 beaches in all of Taiwan that would be suitable for a naval invasion meaning Taiwan can concentrate their forces to defend these beaches. Taipei has for years touted that strategy, but as China's technology grows and their forces get better, more and more people are suggesting that Taiwan begin to shift its focus towards asynchronous fighting throughout the urban areas, jungles, and hills of Taiwan, where China's advantage in tanks and bombers won't have nearly the impact as when they're fighting tightly packed beach defense heads. Having gone through this in the exercises and played both options, what would you suggest? There's no question that the Taiwanese should resist from the very beginning. So that means defending the beaches. It means defending the airfields and the ports. The thing is that it will not be able to defeat the invasion uh, offshore. It's not going to be able to prevent the Chinese from getting ashore. For a long time, that had been the Taiwanese goal. uh, And it was not unreasonable for a long period of time when the Chinese air and maritime capabilities were weak. Now, there's no way they can prevent the Chinese from at least establishing a beachhead. But they need to contain that beachhead so that U.S., Taiwanese, and often Japanese forces can attack the Chinese fleet, and then the Taiwanese can flow forces down and eventually defeat the beachheads. So if the U.S. were going to begin to supply Taiwan with weapons beforehand in the hopes of giving Taiwan enough strength to be able to hold off China until the U.S. can arrive, Should Washington be prioritizing things like Abrams tanks that could go head-to-head with the Chinese ones? Or should they be prioritizing things like anti-tank rivals, man pads, AT missiles, and guided rockets that would probably be more useful outside of those beachhead defenses? 
what we've recommended is what, what's called the porcupine strategy. And many people have looked at this problem have made the same recommendation. So we are consistent with those views. What we tell the Taiwanese is that the structure that they have established, which is a balanced air naval ground force that looks a lot like the United States, was appropriate for 50 years after the Civil War because the Chinese air and naval capabilities were so weak that Taiwanese could then compete with the Chinese. The problem is, for the last 20 years, that has not been the case. The Chinese have built a very formidable military. The Taiwanese can no longer compete. And as a result, in the first couple of days of the war, the Taiwanese surface fleet is destroyed. Most of their aircraft are also destroyed, despite the fact they've gone to great lengths to harden shelters and even to dig facilities into mountains. So given the new situation, the Taiwanese need to move towards more survivable uh, systems that would include truck-based anti-ship missiles, portable anti-aircraft systems, sea mines, for example, and strengthening the ground forces, which traditionally have been sort of third priority. And if Washington knows that Taiwan will have to enter this war for a few weeks without any U.S. support, why isn't Washington flooding Taiwan with these truck-based anti-ship missiles or man pads and putting them in a bunker in preparation, rather than waiting till the war actually kicks off and risking Taiwan capitulating before these supplies can arrive? We may be on the verge of doing that. You know, up until very recently, all of the Taiwanese weapons came through foreign military sales. In other words, the Taiwanese would buy uh, weapons. And even that was quite controversial. Of course, the Chinese objected to every sale, but there were many sales over the years. The delivery has been very slow, and I'm told that there's fault on both sides, the U.S. side and the Taiwanese side, so that there are a lot of weapons that are still theoretically in the pipeline. The reason I say that's about to change is that Congress has awakened to this problem and has done a couple of things. First, it's authorized the president to use drawdown authority to send weapons to Taiwan. This is the same authority that the president has used to send weapons to Ukraine. That is, the president could take existing U.S. weapons and give them to Taiwan, and that would be available very quickly. Congress has also considered grants. They finally rejected that in, in the last Authorization Act. They did allow some loans for the Taiwanese. I wouldn't be surprised if at some point they did provide some grants. And there's also been talk about prepositioning equipment on Taiwan. Stationing forces would be extremely controversial, but maybe prepositioning equipment might be uh, sustainable. And if there were a conflict, the United States could just hand the keys to the warehouses to the Taiwanese and you know say, go at it. So for that reason, I say it has not been an issue in the past, but the floodgates, if you will, may be opening. And the reason coming out of our game is that it's much better to arm the Taiwanese than to try to build U.S. forces in the Pacific and then push them on to Taiwan. I think it needs to be asked, as I see it in way too many discussions around Taiwan, the thought being that, well, the U.S. has more planes and that the F-35 is miles ahead of the Chinese J-20. And with that logic, the U.S. should be able to regain air supremacy over Taiwan very quickly. How would you respond to that claim? Well, there's no question the F-35, F-22s are, are superb uh, aircraft. Uh, the problem in the game is that 90% of U.S. losses are on the ground. And the reason that happens is that our TAC Air, F-35s and all the other aircraft, are very short-legged. So they have to be quite close to Taiwan in order to participate in the conflict. Uh, that means they're based in places like Kadena, which is Okinawa, which is quite close, or you know, southern Japan. But that puts them well within the range of Chinese missiles. So periodically, the Chinese attack the air bases. Dozens of aircraft are destroyed, but the United States will then send more aircraft in. They'll conduct operations around Taiwan. The Chinese will attack them again. And this dynamic keeps going on 
Now, by the end of the game, the United States has destroyed enough of the Chinese fleet that they cannot sustain an invasion, but it's lost hundreds of aircraft doing so. So that one reason that the F-35 doesn't sweep the skies is because most of them are destroyed on the ground. And the other reason is just that the, although they are better one-on-one, the Chinese just have a lot of aircraft up there. So there is an, a numbers offset problem. One of the major recommendations the report makes is that the U.S. needs to make more quantity in the U.S. air fleet rather than concentrating on just a few really good fighters and stop retiring many of their long-range bombers, such as the B-52 fleet. Why is that? Well, there are two things. I mean, one is we note that numbers matter, particularly when you're losing hundreds of aircraft on the ground. And even the older aircraft are very helpful in close air support and uh, ground attack and even attack on the Chinese fleet. Um, The bombers, though, particularly are important because bombers combined with long-range missiles were extremely powerful. They could be based outside of the Chinese defensive bubble, so they didn't have this problem about being destroyed on the ground. So maintaining those numbers was extremely important. The Air Force has been retiring bombers uh, over the last uh, number of years, basically in sync with their retirements of tactical aviation. And our argument is, no, they should stop retiring bombers. Don't accept a gap until the B-21s come online, because they, you know, they won't be online in numbers until the 2030s. Uh, and even when the B-21s come online, it's probably worthwhile keeping uh, many of these bombers around because they're just so useful in long-range strike. The Chinese hypersonic missiles seem to be what most of the Admiralty are very worried about. And that is easy to understand why, when your study suggests that in most cases, the US will lose around two to three carriers during this conflict. Are these hypersonic missiles that much of a threat to the US carrier fleet? Chinese long-range missiles are what kill the carriers. You know, they're missiles specifically designed to do that. Uh, The problem with all of the surface ships is that when they're inside the Chinese defensive zone and the Chinese still have missiles, they're extremely vulnerable. And the reason that two carriers get sunk is that by doctrine and long-time practice, the United States will forward deploy forces in a crisis to increase deterrence and augment war fighting if it comes to that. The problem here is that now the carriers are inside the Chinese defensive zone Thomas Schilling once had a great quote. He said, the problem with a strong deterrent is it also makes a great target. People forget that the United States Navy moved the battle fleet from San Diego to Pearl Harbor in the spring of 1941 to increase deterrence against Japan. And we know how that turned out. And in the game, the same thing happens with our carriers. You know, We move them forward for deterrence, and that puts them in danger. Whilst the report calls for immediate response from the US and Japan against China, it also steps back and warns against any strikes against the Chinese mainland, not even targeting SAM sites on the Chinese East Coast. Why is that? In our base case, the way we structured the game is we had a base case which we considered the most likely outcomes, and then we did a variety of excursions to look at alternatives. Uh, In the base case, we assumed that the United States would authorize strikes on the mainland, so uh, many of the U.S. players attacked Chinese ports and airfields. But we ran many excursions where that authorization withheld because there's a very lively debate about whether the United States would be willing to do that or not. So we're getting to wrap up here, and can you take us through what the report's recommendations are and what the U.S. should be doing and or supplying to Taiwan today to be able to prepare them in the event of a conflict in 2026? Well, there are a variety of things that we would recommend, but the three top programmatic recommendations would be first, buy more long-range anti-ship missiles. Uh, One of the things we've seen in Ukraine is that our inventories are not uh, very deep and our ability to surge production is not very good. That's by design. After the Cold War, we squeezed the 
defense industry to be efficient, not to have surge capacity. So the first thing would be buy a lot more long-range missiles, particularly anti-ship missiles. Uh, the second thing is build hardened shelters in places like Guam and in Japan. I was astonished to find out that Guam has a large amount of tarmac. It can base a large number of aircraft that has no hardened shelters whatsoever. Uh, and as a result, aircraft there are extremely vulnerable. And uh, the third thing would be helping the Taiwanese acquire weapons before the war so that the United States doesn't have to try to push forces onto Taiwan. The report suggests that things go terribly wrong for the Chinese in almost every single scenario. And surely the Chinese military leadership must know this as well. So why would Beijing ever actually go ahead with this, knowing that the chance of success in Taiwan is so disastrously low? Well, we certainly hope that Chinese read this report and come to the conclusion that this is not worth doing and therefore do not launch uh, an invasion. The problem is that countries will do things that we think are unwise. Sometimes they have a different calculation about the military balance. Sometimes they think the military balance is moving against them. Sometimes they think that for domestic reasons, they need to make a military move, even though they know it's extremely risky. And we've seen in Ukraine that Putin launched his invasion, even though most people believed it would be unwise and it would be counterproductive, which in turn, in fact, it has been, but he did it anyway. The report the Mark and his team authored laid out dozens of different scenarios on how a war over Taiwan might unfold. And even though the scenarios have dozens of different decisions being made, unless something way out of field happens, like Japan not entering the war, or Taiwan's president fleeing on day one, the US almost every single time handily win the engagement. With the conclusion stating that if Taiwan can hold out for two to five weeks, that by that point, the US can begin to wrestle back air superiority and use that superiority to start punishing Chinese convoys to a point where they lose 90% of everything crossing the channel, meaning the PLA forces stranded fighting on the island begin to conserve their fledgling ammo, and are faced with the reality of eventually fighting fresh and well-supplied allied forces beginning to land on the opposite side of the island. By just three weeks into the conflict, China pretty much has to have Taiwan at or near capitulation, or the tide just begins to turn too much. And at that point, for the PLA soldiers fighting on Taiwan, defeat stops becoming an if, and becomes a when. Most games played out with around 9,000 to 12,000 casualties for the US. 270 US and 112 Japanese planes lost, with around 17 US and 26 Japanese ships lost. Which may not sound like a huge amount considering the size of the forces being used in this fight, but when you begin to compare that ultra-high price tag to other US engagements in places like Iraq, Afghanistan, or Vietnam, the price is pretty steep. For the Chinese though, their price is far higher, with most scenarios ending with China losing around 15,000 men at sea and another 30,000 men on land, either taken during battle or being taken prisoner at the inevitable end of the conflict. China will also go on to lose 155 planes and 138 military ships, as well as an unknown number of cargo ships. This war becomes a lightning strike for each side, with the generals tasked with planning the war being acutely aware that if Taiwan can hold out for three weeks, the US will return to the region with overwhelming air power and defeat becomes almost inevitable. So the war for China has to be won within three weeks. On the reverse of that, the US also know that they must defeat China before they can occupy the entirety of Taiwan. As the report tells us, 
If the US are fighting off China whilst they have less than a third of the island, it will cost around 9 to 15,000 casualties. If the US holds back and waits until China's retaken the island and refortifies the bridgeheads that made their invasion so difficult, the US estimates that they'll need to take 100,000 casualties in order to retake Taiwan. And if the US further delay, waiting years until the PRC have really established themselves on the island, set up an interconnected web of SAM sites, and have become the dominant power in this theater, making any US operations within the second island chain a danger to its fleet. For the US to retake it at that point in time would entail a cost of around 150,000 to 200,000 by some estimates. And if the US don't manage to dislodge China from Taiwan, they're no longer directly competing with Beijing for influence over the South China Sea or the Southern Japanese islands, but instead for influence over the Central Pacific and even possibly the Malacca Strait. For both sides, this conflict very quickly becomes a now or never scenario, knowing that the longer you leave it, the higher the price you'll end up paying. And those three long weeks of battle on Taiwan will set the geopolitical course in Asia for the next three decades. Our hope here, though, is that just both sides look at the reports, Beijing realizes the magnitude of the task and avoids overplaying its hand like Moscow has. Thank you so much for checking out the show this week. This piece was a bit of a follow-on from our piece last week, looking at European rearmament, as Europe is currently in the middle of its own now-or-never moment. So if you like this piece and you haven't checked out that one, I highly recommend you go back and check it out. And if you want to avoid missing pieces when we drop them, you can be kept up to date with everything we get up to, as well as all of our other content and upcoming events, either on our website, www.theredlinepodcast.com, or you can find all their links and info on Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, Facebook, Discord, and TikTok on the handle at the Redline Pod. Otherwise, if you're keen to follow me on Twitter, I'm on the handle at Mike Elliott Oz. Oz is in Australia. This show is completely funded by our amazing Patreons, who donate a small amount of money each month to help keep myself and this team going. And speaking of our amazing Patreons, I'd like to thank Stephanie Taylor, Kevin Pierce, Andrew Tucano, Tom, and Edward Tovey, who are the latest patrons to sign up as of time of recording. This show is only possible with the support of listeners like these guys, who donate a small amount of money each month to help us keep this show going, and we really can't thank them enough. So if you feel you can spare a couple of dollars, we greatly appreciate it. As usual, here are three book recommendations. The first is The Avoidable War, my friend of the show, Kevin Rudd, for a look at the potential off-ramps for these giants to avoid catastrophe. And the second is War Without Rules, by Brigadier General Robert Spaulding, for a look at how complicated this conflict is likely to be. And the third is The Chinese Invasion Threat, Taiwan's Defense and American Strategy in Asia, by Ian Easton, for a look at Taiwan's options. I want to give a big thanks to this week's guests, Tim Heath, Daniel Darling, and Mark Kincaid, who is this program's 250th guest. What a perfect way to hit 250. I also want to give a big thanks to my staff, Wade McCarr, the producer, Perry Grace, Daniel Zivella, Genevieve Donald and May, Nate Ostiller, Nick McNally, Sean Cotter-Lem, Isaac Gibbs, Ahmad Al-Ahmad, Andrew Garbery, and Robbie Sutton, our research assistants and writers, Jamie Tanu, a media director, Francis Leach, our director of Breaking News, Mark Spencer, our second voiceover artist, Derek Henry Flood, our deputy editor, Jonah Gunn, our production assistant, Ross Crabtree, our media advisor, Joe Hawthorne, our audio cleaner, Marissa Rafter, our videographer, and Nick Munch, our field correspondent. Without this team, there is no red line and I'm eternally grateful to have them on this project. The Red Line will be back in another fortnight with another international episode. But until then, thank you for listening. 
Good night. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are solely those of Michael, our guests, and the Redline podcast. They do not represent any government or organization and are solely our own. For more information, please visit theredlinepodcast.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.